Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. It is always such a joy for Denise and me to come and be back with you, and um, we're refreshed. We're encouraged to be with you and are grateful for the invitation from Richard and the session to come and preach this morning with you, and so it's good uh, to, to be with you. A lot has happened in the Richardson household since I last saw you. After 22 years at Reformed Theological Seminary, I've just fully and finally retired. It took about a year for the whole process to unwind. Uh, so now we're adjusting. Uh, Denise has uh, twice the husband and half the income, but she's getting along okay with it. Um, I, I think of the words of the comedian Henny Youngman, who said, I have all the money I'll ever need for the rest of my life, as long as I die by next Thursday. So, <laughs> This morning, I want us to dive into a wonderful passage of Scripture. I've been actually personally studying devotionally for, for, for many weeks, actually several months. Um, I want to share some of the things that I've been gleaning from it. I promise not to drop the whole load on you, but uh, it's a wonderful path as we come together to celebrate communion together. Uh, Ligon Duncan, our chancellor of the seminary, was asked a while back by someone to say, it's Reformed Theological Seminary. Now, it, would you please explain to me as, as succinctly as you can what is Reformed theology. Can you kind of boil it down? And he said, of course, I'd be glad to. He said, you ready? Three words. God saves sinners. And the person looked at him and said, is that it? <laughs> he said, actually, yes. But you have to understand the depth of each of those words and how they relate together to really get a full understanding of that. These are three simple, familiar words, and yet they're freighted with incredible depth of meaning and application for us. They're like, in a sense, a theological zip file that if you know anything about computers, you can compress an enormous amount of information into a zip file and attach it to an email and send it. But on the other end, you have to unzip it. You have to open it up in order to be able to understand all that's being sent to you. And so we're going to look at a passage, Ephesians chapter 2, these first 10 verses that un unzips this truth, if you would. Uh, and, and I'd want us to take our Bibles and look at this together. It's one of many passages that we could pick to speak to this just as well. Romans, Galatians, many other places. But uh, you have your Bibles. Follow with me, if you will, as I read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, our Lord, as we open our Bibles, only you can open our hearts. And we ask that you would do that now as we study your word that you would speak to us that as we walk out of this place, we will know that you have been talking to us individually, personally. And in this, Lord, we ask that you would be honored and that we would be encouraged in our knowledge, our walk, our heart commitments before you. In your wonderful and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. So as we're looking at three parts in this, let's talk about first who we as people are before God, before his work of salvation on our behalf. That would be the first three verses. Then we want to talk about how God actually does this work of salvation in verses 4 through 7. And then lastly, the big so what? What difference does it make? Verses 8 through 10. So first, let's look at uh, who all people are before God does his work of salvation in the first three verses. It's a continuation, actually, of what I just read from chapter 1. But as I look at it, just to read these verses again to keep us familiar with it, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by children, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, Paul's not exactly trying to be nice, is he? He's not sugarcoating things. He's not trying to cover over a gloss or, or play nice with other people. He's, he's talking about the condition of people apart from Christ. All people apart from Christ including us, before we come into relationship with God in Christ Jesus, are categorically declared to be dead. How? I mean, physically, we can be alive, but how can we be dead at the same time? Well, how do we determine someone to be physically alive or physically dead? And it doesn't take a doctor to say that an alive person responds to the stimulus. Um, you, you get checked out, you go into the hospital. Uh, you, you get checked out as to your vital signs. Or are you breathing? Are you responding with your pupils or your pulse? The vital signs, all of these things. There's a response to the stimulus that, that gives a clear indication that a person is alive or dead. 
And you could say the exact same thing to determine if somebody's spiritually alive as well. The answer there is also, do they respond to the stimulus of God through his word and by his spirit? If they do, then they're alive. If they don't, then they're dead. And God says that there are really only two categories that matter. Spiritually alive or dead. And to say something like that, quite honestly, is so antithetical, it's so opposite to our natural senses. To be quite honest, it's, it's, it's quite un-American to say something like that in our inclusive society that we live in. We do divide people into groups, lots of categories. We talk about people being beautiful or, or plain, to be nice. We talk about people being smart or, or uh, less so. We used to say people were some, some were leaders. Now these days we talk about influencers or followers. Uh, we talk these days about people being woke or racist. Patriots or traitors, conservatives or liberals, rich or poor, maybe even religious or non-religious. Or the ultimate American divide is a winner versus being a loser. But all of these in some form are, are basically shades of being good or better versus bad. And in contrast, scripture repeatedly says that there are no good people before God in ourselves. There are no achievers, <clears throat> excuse me, there are no achievers who have met the mark of being acceptable to God. We could look at Old Testament, Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness before God are as filthy rags. You throw them out, you burn them, you get rid of them, you know. You don't collect them. Romans 3.12, there are none who do good. No, not one. So any form of good by our standards is in ourselves not ever going to be good enough before God. The very actual the definition of sin is to miss the mark. That's, it's to come short of the standard that God sets. I, I've mentioned before, I think, when I was in college, going to California and visiting with friends who lived on the coast, and we went out and they, they had the, these long piers that go out into the Pacific Ocean, and there was this game that was being played at one of the piers called Jumping to Catalina. Catalina's an island off the coast, and so the people would run, 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 run down this, this long pier and they'd take this flying leap off the end of the pier and they had some floating measure and they would keep a chart and I mean, it was pretty impressive how far people could jump out of the pier out into the water. The problem was Catalina is 20 miles off the coast. So it didn't matter how far you could jump, you probably weren't going to get close. And if it was up to you, you'd probably be dead if you we're trying to do that to, to, to make the, the, the ultimate jump. So what is this saying to us? It's saying that a person can be 
rich, they can be beautiful, they can be a winner in every way by our society's standards, and yet before God, they're dead. You know, I, I, I picture in my mind Christmas trees that we, we cut and we bring into our homes at Christmas time. We decorate them, they smell good, they look good, we have a lot of fun around them, but because they're cut off from the roots, they're really dead trees. And it's just a matter of time before it shows up that they, they have no life and they die. So uncompromisingly, God through Paul declares in verse 1, we were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in verse 3, it, it clarifies again, all of us, there's not an exception apart from Christ. So this would be gruesome. This would be a pretty bad story if that were the end of the story. You think of Ezekiel and his lament, can these dead bones live again? But there is good news in the, the backdrop, against the backdrop of the bad news. As we look at who we are before we're God, secondly, we, we look at what God is doing. How is God doing his work of salvation in verses 4 through 7? And it begins with looking at God and his nature as he reveals himself. Remember, God never explains himself. He just reveals himself. What is his character? What is he like? How does he reveal himself? And as we see in scripture, God reveals himself not as vindictive or resentful, that he as creator God made us this way. We rebelled against him. We are not worthy to be before him. What's going to happen? He could have, and by all rights, should have, in one sense, rejected all of us, condemned us. But he's not that way. His character, his nature is revealed to be that of love through which in his holiness and his righteousness he shows us mercy, which is to not receive the things that we would deserve that would be bad, and also his grace. It's to receive the good things that we don't deserve because of our actions of who we are. Verses 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, these verses, 5 through 7, God's work of love is to make us alive by by his active working out of his grace and of his mercy. And it's only possible because what he did for us in sacrificing his own son on our behalf, the only one in the universe who could live a perfect life, who could die a substitutionary death on behalf of those who could never live the perfect life, such that to our credit, our spiritual bank account, God would give us what we need in order to have relationship with him again. It's that wonderful work that Jesus does, his righteousness on our behalf that enables us 
to come back in relationship with him. There was a little boy who, with his father, worked for many months to build a beautiful model boat that he just loved. And he took it out to the lakes and he had this um, radio equipment that was in it and it would go out and he loved playing with the boat and his father, it was a wonderful time together, but one day something failed and the equipment didn't work and the boat went off and it was gone. And the little boy was so distraught and so distressed. And he grieved and he grieved. And one day he was walking in town and there in the pawn shop window was his boat. And he went inside and he explained. He said, this is my boat. And the shop owner said, yeah, okay. And the little boy said, can I have my boat? He said, I'm sorry, I have to sell this boat. The little boy went home and he told his father and he worked and he worked and he worked and he gathered up all of his pennies and all of his money and he went back to the shop and he presented the man with the payment and the man gave him the boat and as he walked out the door the boy said to the boat, he said, little boat, you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you. That's what God and Jesus Christ did for us. He created us, but he also recreated us in Christ Jesus. So we have to be aware, as we look at a passage like this, we can't ever be deceived or get confused. Jesus was never, never claimed to be some moral teacher that, that came in order to help people who help themselves. He didn't come to make bad people good. He didn't come to make nasty people a lot nicer. Jesus came to make dead people come alive. And he proved it in and of himself, demonstrating that in that the Father raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven, as it says, and it says that's where God recognizes us with him that are joined by faith in Christ Jesus that we're in a place of relationship with God the Father in the heavens, positionally even right now. That's how God sees us. Even though we live in the nasty here and now on earth, where we are. It's, it's theologically what we refer to sometimes as the already but not yet. So why did he do this? We get a little glimpse of this in verse 7, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What that means is that you and I, as we come to relationship with God in Christ Jesus, we become both now and for eternity exhibit A, if you want to put it that way, in the, 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 the court of the entire cosmos to demonstrate the character and the nature of the God who created and who redeems creation to himself. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. Ultimately, there'll be the new heavens and the new earth that were promised in the Revelation, restored, repopulated. No more tears, no more tribulations, no more trials. But it's also, as we look at this past and think about it, it's that. He's talked about the past. He jumps to the future before he even talks about the present. Why does he do that? 
Perhaps it, it's because it gives us a perspective on which we can see how we live today, of where we will be. It gives us that 30,000 foot view of what life is like now and how to, how to keep it in, in an understanding in that vantage point that helps us understand what's going on here. I remember a story of two men who went to, a, they had an afternoon, they were on a business trip, they decided to go to the movie. So they went to the movie and it was one of these suspenseful movies that was really kind of an Alfred Hitchcock keep you on the edge of your chair, that type of thing. And one of the guys was about to jump out of his skin. It was just one of these things that just every twist and turn, he was just like he couldn't stand it. But his buddies over here just sort of chuckling under his breath. And finally, the guy that's just so anxious about it, he says, what are you smiling about? What are you laughing about? And the guy said, well, I hate to tell you, but I cheated. I've actually read the book and I know how it ends. That's kind of where we are. Who we are, how God works. So let's talk a little bit about so what. Um, what difference does it make? Verses 8 through 10. Oh, such richness here. I've, I've been rereading in the wonderful biography of John Newton uh, that, that was written by uh, Jonathan Atkins, who himself was an amazing trophy of God's grace, a British prime minister, not prime minister, a uh, uh, lord. Um, but, but John Newton, John Newton, when he was alive, he's the guy that, the minister, he was a slaver. He, he, he actually was a slave himself. He became a slave trader. Uh, he, he was an absolutely profane person. They said he would shock even sailors. He was so profane. And yet God in his mercy brought him to himself. He became a minister of the gospel. He wrote among many hymns, Amazing Grace. Um, John Newton, amazing guy. Amazing God because of what God did. Uh, he, John Newton said that his prayer was that God would create and sustain in him three things. And those three things that he asked God to do was faith, humility, and gratitude. As an outworking of the relationship with God. And all three of those are found right here in these two verses. Verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith in this the faith to believe is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. You see, the, the sovereign God who's working on behalf of us to provide salvation is doing it not as some sort of an exchange, some sort of quid pro quo, where you scratch your, your, my back, I'll scratch your back. You take care of me, I'll take care of you. You believe, I will take care of you in return. That's not at all what it says is happening. He says this is strictly and purely a gift by God to us. Solely on the work basis of his work of action, not ours. And he says even the ability to believe is something that God does. That's pretty powerful. Humility. Humility before God and others for that matter too. Scripture says we didn't earn it. We cannot sit here 
as a group of people saying, you know, didn't we do a good job being Christians? Don't you think God's pleased with how, how often we go to church and how much we give to things that would be of his doing? Is, is, don't you think God's pleased? We can't do that. Scripture says we can't earn that relationship. This is so counterintuitive, and certainly for our American mindset. I mean, I am, and I am not ashamed to say it, we've got our flag flying up at our house back in Jackson right now. I'm a patriot. I am grateful to God for the gift of being able to be in this country and to live where we live, and the sacrifices that have been given by so many so that we can have freedom that no other country has and prosperity that no one else in the entire world is able as a country to enjoy. But this is counterintuitive. This is so against this American mindset of how we think and how we operate. You know, I believe in the right to, to risk and then to receive what I have earned. I think you probably do too. I believe in the rewards that could come so that I can provide for my own and, and for myself and have the ability to help others at my discretion. And, and I frankly believe that those who can work and who don't work shouldn't be coddled. And yet scripture teaches that our salvation is not our accomplishment. It's not by my working for it, says directly in verse 9, but the, by the faith in God's finished work in Christ Jesus. And then it says, as the kicker in verse 8, even that faith to believe comes from God, not from us. It's an interesting parallel passage. It's a little bit tricky as you read it because in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, the people have been following Jesus and, they, and Jesus goes around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they follow him and they go all the way around. So he's got his groupies all around him and they're asking me, what must we do? Well, this is what it says. What must we do, verse 28 of chapter 6 in John, to be doing the works of God? And then Jesus says this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. We can easily read that as saying, oh, it's your job to believe in this. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that God is at work in order for you to be able to believe. I think I may have mentioned at least to some of you, I had a friend who took his son, his young son, they're going to have a daddy-son time in Atlanta. His son was about three and a half, four and a half, somewhere in there. So they're crossing the street at Peachtree Avenue. If you've ever been there, it's just, it's chaos. So he's halfway across the street, the lights change, he realizes the traffic is starting to flow, he grabs his son and crosses about five more lanes safely to the other side and takes a deep breath. And then his little boy just hugs his neck and says, Daddy, didn't I hang on tight? Who's hanging on to whom? Faith, humility, gratitude, thankfulness, praise for his goodness, his loving kindness, his grace and mercy. You see, the work of salvation, the work of God doing, the word literally, the word to be saved literally translates to be healed. As you read through and it talks about Jesus healed a man of this or of that, the word is the same word for saved. 
It means to be made complete, to be healed in its fullest sense. That's what it means. So to be fully in God's work of salvation is to be fully alive. It's to partner with him, to be even in the world that we live in with all of the distractions and all the things that we deal with in our own sinfulness and, and with others and all. It's to partner with him, to be creative. It's to be influential. It's to be productive. It's to be practically involved. Not to retreat into some sort of holy huddle. You know, put on white robes and stand up on the top of the mountain Pray that God comes and zaps you and beams you up, Scotty, and all that kind of stuff. No. It's a task to be had. It's a privilege to be able to, to labor in his kingdom as we have opportunity and time to do it. Verse 10, I want to look at this for a few minutes. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we've already established you cannot work for your salvation, but you can work from your salvation. And God prepares the preparation, the work. He provides what is needed, the motivation and the guidance to do this good work. Not as some sort of requirement, as some sort of, of you prove that you are worthy to sustain and maintain this relationship with me. It's not a condition of relationship. It's a practical outworking of thanksgiving when you realize what God has done and is doing in your own personal life. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's fascinating to me. Think about being a workman. God is engineering in us and enabling through us to do things of lasting, that's eternal significance for good. Things that will lead to us doing our part in the tapestry of how God is, is writing history. What does a workman do? A workman is someone who takes the materials that they have and puts it together in such a way that it is aesthetic, it's, it has usefulness, it has all manner of things in it. For those of you who are artists, you may work in paint or you may work in clay or metals or all kinds of things. But you see, God, God takes all aspects of our lives and he forms it in such a way taking us to be uniquely an instrument to be able to do things that are of eternal value. He's a, he's a master artist. He, let's call it, he, he works in mixed media. He's at work in your heart, in your life, through your experiences, through our personalities, through the things that he's gifted us uniquely with, and the things that, that are actually deficits in our lives. It's not just the sweet, nice things that he can use and will use. Our efforts to do good, he will use these things. He will surprise us. I think in eternity we're going to be shocked at some of the things that God did that we had no clue he was doing through us. I, Denise and I spoke, um, Denise and I spoke right before the, the um, pandemic back in Delaware, where we served for three years as I was a pastor, and we had a wonderful opportunity to be up there. And a couple came up. We were doing a conference, and a couple came up 
and said, uh, do you remember us? And I honestly had not remembered them. And they stood and I went, oh my goodness. And shortly, what it was was that I had, I didn't, it was about 650 people in the church, so I never really got to know uh, the people that particularly well, but I had gotten word, you know, that there was a lady who was going in for surgery, and would I be willing to go to Christiana Hospital and, and visit with her before? Of course, I'll be glad to do it. Got a list of the people to go see. I went to the hospital, got the room numbers and all that stuff, went up to the room, walked in, the lady's in the bed just sobbing, and she's holding her hand, husband's hand, and uh, she says, I'm, I'm, I'm about to have surgery, and I'm so scared. And I listened to her story a little bit and heard what she was saying. And, and so I, I'm not quite sure what possessed me, to be quite honest. But I said, you know, are, are, you, are you a believer? She said, yes, I am. Do you, do you know Jesus? Yes, I do. Do you know where you're going if you're going to die? Yes, I do. And th this is what I can't believe I said. I said, so is this how you want to end it if he's taking you home? And she looked at me and she looked up at her husband and she looked at me and she said, no. And I said, well, then let's pray that God would give you the peace he's promised and that he'll be working in your heart and that if by his grace and goodness he takes care of you, you'll finish the surgery and you'll be back online and you'll be able to have years more of, of joy in the Lord in, in this flesh. And that's what we did. And she was happy and she, she was grateful. And I, I walked out the door just thanking the Lord. And I looked down at the piece of paper at the next place. And then I looked at the door. I had gone to the wrong room. <laughs> no kidding. This was not a member of our church. But the interesting thing was that they had found out who I was and they went and they've been regular active members of Evangelical Presbyterian Church for 22 years. You'll never know. You'll never know. God uses these things in our lives, the things that are done for us that are good in the way that we may have been brought up wonderfully by wonderful parents. But can I just go so far as to say, he will use even the horrible things that have happened in your life as well. He's much bigger. As Corey Ten Boom used to say, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. The things that happened to you, the things that you may have done that were self-inflicted wounds, he's not beyond that either. To see him work, I mean, you think about Joseph, you know, in the Old Testament and his family, Jacob, and he treated him with such favoritism. And it was, I mean, God is no stranger to dysfunctional families, folks. Sinful people, Joseph was a snotty kid. And his brothers hated his guts because he was, and they were ready to kill him. And they decided to make a few bucks off of him and sold him into slavery. He goes through, he's mistreated, he's misunderstood. He tries to do the right stuff and bad things drop in on him in a big time. Goes on for years until finally God brings him into the place of second in power, even under the Pharaoh alone, in order to provide food that will keep the world basically alive at that time. What an amazing thing that God does. 
God's work of redemption, even in this life, is to bring meaning, is to be purpose, is to change those things that seem even horrible to us. One of the things we know in counseling, I see Misha over here, he probably agree with this too, in trauma, one of the things that is so powerful to see happen in a person who has had to deal with real horrible trauma in their lives is that there's a turning point in which trauma is, is beginning to heal when the person realizes that this happens to them. Maybe it happened multiple times to them, that it is real and it was wrong, and yet all of a sudden it, it, it changes from being their identity to something that just happened to them. And for us as believers, even the trauma that goes on in our lives, maybe it's even self-inflicted things, can by God's work change, be transformed into what becomes our testimony in the uniqueness of God's working in your life and in my life. And it's never going to be the same for us. As believers, we're kind of like a, a big Venn diagram, you know, where you have the concentric circles that sort of overlap. We may have overlapping things, but every one of us has a unique story. And that's your testimony of God's mercy, of God's grace, of God's goodness. Just a couple of thoughts. I mean, is, is God at work or are we at work? And the answer to that is yes. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. It's the both end. A couple of thoughts for young people. Get to know God. I don't trust people I don't know. You don't either. You've got to get to know God and watch him at work in your own life to see that. And as you do that and you follow him, you'll learn more and more that he's reliable. He never tells us to do something or not do something unless it's to protect us or provide for us. That's it. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't use it. It says just don't lean on it. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Get to know him, and he will make the path straight. For those of us who are older, you know, what a friend of mine used to call the metallic age. Silver in your hair, gold in your teeth, lead in your, never mind, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> What do we think about in our lives as we look back? If you've been walking, it's easy for us, and I've talked to so many who question, as we look back in our lives, and we've gone through hard times, and there are things that we thought, that seems like so much the wrong decision that I've made in my life. Did I do what God was really calling me to do? The good works that it's talking about here, the things maybe I, maybe I should have done, did I pursue the right career? Was I in the right place? Did I make the right choices? Verse 10 speaks to this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For all of your wondering about your wanderings, did I miss the mark? The answer is no. You didn't. 
the Lord's been working in your life and is probably still working. You've been doing what you were prepared to do in the very places that he's placed you with the people that he's put into your life, even through sometimes deeply painful things that you've experienced and they're real. The valleys, the dark places, the things that frankly sometimes perplex us and are confusing. Remember Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. He's talking to believers, his people. But take courage, I've, over I've overcome. In the pandemic, Denise and I um, read out loud in the evenings um, some in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's, particularly the, the last book, The Last Battle, which is uh, one of our favorites. We, we read through that with our girls when they were little two or three times. And uh, it's fun, just the two adults reading out loud with voices, uh, this thing. And, and it's, this, it's, it's the last battle. And, and there's a point in this in which there's a huge fight. All seems to be lost. It seems to be, it seems to be bleak. Aslan, who's the picture of Christ in the book, has not shown himself clearly. And, and the, these, these young people are struggling to deal with what's going on. And then they, make, then they make this statement. This has become, in our family, our daughter calligraphied this. This has become a reminder, a quotable reminder for us in difficult things. These, this is the line. Nothing now remains for us seven but to go back to Stable Hill to proclaim the truth and take the adventure that Aslan gives us. That's a walk of faith. That's a walk of relationship, even when there seems to be a gap in our understanding. Just one last thought here as we draw things together and we prepare our hearts for communion. We see in this passage before and outside of Christ, we're dead in our sin. The declaration is made about God's love and mercy and, and grace and what God does for us that we could never do for ourselves, both for eternity and in the work that we even do as this, in this life that we have here. But, but I want to point out one thing. It's where the title for this sermon has come from. It's the first two words of the fourth verse in this passage, but God but God. That's the hinge on which everything hangs. You could, you could, you could spend a long time in Scripture going through the passages of Scripture of, of looking up just but God and seeing what it relates to and what it says. In this passage, it talks about being dead, but God made us alive in Jesus. He raised us up in Christ. He initiates and enables us even to have the faith to believe and sustains us in that. And verse 9, giving us the ability as he re-engineers and takes all that has happened in and through us to do good works. We see this happening over and over as God is at work, but God, even Joseph, when his brothers come and they expect him to kill him, he says the Romans 8:28 of the Old Testament, Genesis 50:20, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And if we're honest to ourselves, we get caught in the trap quite honestly that we don't see it as scripture presents it in our lives. Our tendency is to reverse this in our own thinking. It's that I know God can do all things, but my circumstances. 
I believe God into this word, but my finances have. I think God is good, but my relationships, but my work, but you fill in the blank. And quite frankly, Satan will bring up things as the accuser of the brethren, Revelations 12. When God, through Jesus, says in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, as a good shepherd, the thief comes, and that's referring to Satan, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Satan is a master to bring up all the but circumstances. Your sinfulness, the things happening to you, the things that have happened, the reality of things, but he's always presenting half-truths. And half-truths presented as whole-truths are always whole lies. So if you fall into the prey of thinking that God cannot love me, he cannot use me, I'm disqualified because of my own struggles with sin, because of what's happened to me, can I suggest something? That is not biblical theology. That is, as someone has said, that is satanic thiefology. We should always be saying, just like verse 4, I know that my finances, I know that my children, I know that my spouse, I know my circumstances, I know my job, I know the limitations, I know these things are real but God is greater. So I leave you again with the three-word theological zip file, the most wonderful summary worth pondering on, which we will understand only in fullness in eternity, what we believe summarized in three words, God saves sinners. Isn't it amazing to be a Christian? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit bringing it to life in us that you would give us life in yourself. And even as we come before you, we ask that you would be honored in our hearts, recognizing our inability, unworthiness, but your total gift of life in yourself for us. We give ourselves again to you. In your sweet and precious name, Jesus, amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.